you start to look at your product or service based on the problem that it solves for the customer and why they would hire or buy that, that product or service. So you're looking at the cause behind the purchase and not correlating the purchase to something like the customer's age or gender or things like that. So causation versus correlation, which is a much stronger way to, to be able to serve your audience and to innovate. This is Brand Story, a podcast celebrating the stories of real people who are making an impact on brands, business, and the world around them. So today we decided to do something a little different and bring Lindsay Lachlan, our Vice President of Gravity Group, into the podcast studio and talk to her a little bit about a course she's recently taken. And uh, so hi, Lindsay. Hi. So today we're going to talk about you recently finished a course in Disruptive Strategy at Harvard Business School Online. So my first question is, could you have picked anything more difficult to do <laughs> in your spare time? It was actually really interesting and I think played a lot on conversations that we've had at Gravity between you and I and with clients. And so I think it was perfect timing and just something that really got my attention and I think will really help us and help our clients. I know you had a lot you could choose from, but what made you pick disruptive strategy? Because I think that's such an interesting topic. I'm, I'm really glad you did it. And I think it's so much cool information, but what, what drew, drew you to that? Yeah, so it was something that quite honestly, I never really had heard much about and didn't really know a lot about. So I was excited to learn in an area that was pretty new to me um, in a more formal learning style that you know I've really not had since college. So I was really excited about that. And then just coming out of you know essentially two years of a pandemic, I think we're at a point where a lot of businesses are, are reevaluating their business structures and the products and services they offer. So I just kind of felt like the stars aligned. Um, it was the perfect topic. Um, like I said, for us to be able to, to help ourselves and our clients as we're trying to navigate out of everything that's been going on. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the questions we get asked by clients and when we're working with them on brand or we're working with them on strategies for marketing or how they're going to communicate come down to having strategic conversations. So I think, you know, it's a, a great area to always be getting better and better at. And uh, so I applaud you for doing it. Um, I've heard that the uh, Harvard Business School online co- classes and and study is pretty intense. How was it? It was. um, I honestly didn't really know what to expect. Uh, I had friends and family that I talked to and they were like, oh, you're doing an online thing. I'm like, that's cool. Um, And then other people, you know, and myself kind of going into it that was just like, wow, this is going to be a lot of work. And they let you know up front that, you know, it's probably going to be six, seven or eight hours of work each week. Um, But it was really in depth. Uh, Their learning style was really interesting or their teaching style, I guess. Um, it was all online, but there were a lot of videos that you know we watched, um, things that we read, but they made it really interactive so that you felt like you were in a classroom setting. So as we went through each module, there were times where they would, uh, I forget what they labeled some of them, but it was like cold call and it, there would be a timer and you would have like two minutes to answer a question and you had to type your response in, think about it to simulate being in a classroom and having to give an answer off the top of your head. And all of those things were taken into account when they looked at, you know, whether you were going to get a certificate at the end or not. Um, and so it was really interesting how they brought kind of that in-person learning to an online medium. That's so cool. And you got, did you get your certificate in innovative strategy from Harvard Business School? Yes. So I have that. And then I'm going to be taking a couple more courses so I can get an actual certificate in strategy as a whole with them. Oh, that's cool. So that'll take you a little while, right? Yeah, it yeah, will. <laughs> so it's going to be stretched out over time. I think that's such a wonderful, wonderful thing for you to do in your role 
Um, so, you know, not only for us as a company, but also to help clients as they're, you know, thinking of new strategies and trying to figure out how to, how to come to market with different, either new products or current products they have. So throughout the conversation we're going to have, I know just enough about this topic to be dangerous because you and I have been talking about it since you've done the class. Um, but there's like three main types of innovation that you're going to refer to as you walk us through a little bit of this. And can you kind of tell me a little bit about those three? Yeah, absolutely. So the first is sustaining innovation, and that's really making performance improvements to products and services that you offer um, just to keep making it better and better over time to continue serving the needs you know, of the people that you're serving. So really, as you're making sustaining innovation improvements, you are targeting kind of the most profitable part of your customer base. Um, and then there are two disruptive segments. So there's low-end disruptive and new market disruption. Um, with low-end, that's where you're looking at, you know, how can we change part of our operations or um, kind of our financial structure to be able to offer a cheaper version of the product and to go after the lower end of the market. So the product might not be as good, but there might be more convenience or a lower cost that enables you to offer something to people that you know, weren't served in that way before. And then with new market disruptors, that's really where you're starting to be able to reach a part of the audience that wasn't served before. So they maybe couldn't afford it or there just wasn't a product that really met their needs. Um, so you're improving performance in a certain area to reach you know, new people um, or a new part of the market. The thing that's important to remember is that you can't disrupt yourself. So if you're focusing on sustaining innovation, you can't come in with a low-end disruption and disrupt the market with that, or you're going to put yourself out of business. So um, disruptive business models have to be separate from your core business model. Yeah, they're more competitive or comparative to other like people in your industry or products that you might compete with. Yeah, absolutely. So typically, if there's any sort of competition like that, the incumbent is going to win on a sustaining battle, and then any newcomer is going to win kind of on the disruptor um, Front. That's interesting. And usually usually those people come to market with a low-end disruptor kind of model in those situations. Yeah, a lot of people will. There, it was really interesting in the class, there was a whole case study about the steel industry and how there was a, you know, a new innovative way to make a certain type of steel product. Um, and it came in at a low-end disruptor because the size of the new plants and everything, they could only make this one thing. Um, and it kept pushing the incumbents up and up into the higher tier, more expensive products. And they were okay with that because their profit margin was higher. But the disruptor kept growing and expanding until they took over that whole industry and the steel mills just collapsed. So it was just really interesting to see, you know, how you have to constantly be innovating and, and getting better at your part of that um, to keep serving the audience that, you know, that you want to serve. Well, that's really interesting. Um, so something you and I have been talking about lately is the idea that customers don't buy products. They hire the products. They hire them to get a job done. And I want to say that again because the first time you started talking to me about this, it's a concept where I'd heard concepts like this before, but I love how this is put. So, you know, consumers don't buy products. They hire a product to help them get a specific job done. What, what's the benefit of framing it that way? It's really interesting, and this was honestly one of my favorite things that we studied in the course uh, was this jobs to be done theory. But a benefit of framing it that way is that you start to look at your product or service based on the problem that it solves for the customer and why they would hire or buy that, that product or service. 
So you're looking at the cause behind the purchase and not correlating the purchase to something like the customer's age or gender or things like that. So causation versus correlation, which is a much stronger way to, to be able to serve your audience and to innovate. That's really, really interesting. And I think, I think when you think of products and, and I, I'm, that applies to services in some ways too. You know, when you go buy something, you're trying to solve a problem for yourself. You're trying to buy, solve the and hire the the job the product's going to do in your life. And I think so many companies and and even clients we've had in the past have mixed that up, thinking that the product that it's just a given. People are going to want it. You know, they're and they'll advertise the benefits of the product without talking about what the job it it solves or the problem it solves, the job that it does in the person's life. Yeah, and if you think of you know, we're in marketing, we work with a lot of marketing departments and teams. Some of the best marketing that we've ever seen is when it addresses that problem that you're solving for the customer. Um, and if that can be really clear, I mean, that's that's where your marketing can really make a lot of ground and, and really help the companies that we're trying to help. Yeah, I mean, consumers are very me-centered. They're, they're coming at it, you know, we the phrase that I've always used is, why should I care? You know, with any marketing, is if I'm a consumer, why should I care about this? And if you comment your marketing from the point of view of what what job does this product do for this person? You know, what problem does it solve for them? Then that changes your entire approach to messaging strategy. When you're trying to write the jobs to be done, framing it that way, you know, putting yourself in the customer's shoes, the questions that they would be asking would be, you know, help me to do X, Y, or Z, or or you know, help me solve this need. And so writing out your job to be done in that format um, is a great first step. And realizing that, you know, adjectives and adverbs are not jobs to be done. So a lot of times you'll see people try to sneak in things like cheap or convenient. Um, those all describe the experience that our product or service has to, you know, the, the, the experience that we have to provide for that person to be able to either purchase or use what we're offering. Uh, but the job to be done itself is really, you know, what are we solving? How are we helping that person? So it's, it's, I think, a really interesting way to look at it. I think, you know, when you frame things, how you frame something really informs how good the result you're going to get is. So do you have any other tips um, for people trying to identify the job to be done? You know, if you're trying to think this way or trying to do this, do you have any kind of tips for people? Yeah, I think one of the biggest is to not get so cut up on data. Um, that's definitely important, but actually talk to and observe the people who are using your product and service. So um, one of my favorite case studies uh, from the course was um, the professor, you know, ran a consulting business as well. And his team had been hired by a popular national fast food uh, chain to go out and look at sales of their milkshakes. So this organization or this company um, would create kind of like mirror audiences or idyllic audience groups that they would bring in and say, okay, we're going to make these changes to a product. What do you think? Or they would, you know, survey them, make the changes. And in that product line, they would, they were making the changes and not seeing any increase in sales. So they were like, what's going on? You know, how do we fix this? So the consultant went in and um, they stood inside the restaurant and they watched everyone buying a milkshake. And going into it, I mean, I was thinking people were buying milkshakes for a treat or dessert or something like that. But they found that half their milkshake sales were before 8.30 in the morning. Wow. And it was primarily men. They were buying a milkshake, no other food, and then they were leaving. They weren't eating it there. They were taking it to go and 
they were on their way. So they observed you know, sales one day, but then went back the next and waited outside and they talked to the people who came out of the restaurant with a milkshake and they said, hey, you know, what job did you hire this milkshake to do? Um, and they learned that, that people were buying milkshakes to drink on their commute because they had a 20, 30 minute ride. Um, it was boring. They needed something that they could hold in their hand and eat on the way. And so it gave them something to do. But if they got a phone call or needed to focus, they could, you know, put the milkshake in the cup holder. Um, and what came out of all of that, that that really made me think it was kind of an aha moment is they talked to people about, you know, okay, if you, on the days that you didn't hire a milkshake, what did you hire? Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, people are going to say things like breakfast sandwiches or, you know, a bagel or whatever. And those are some of the responses, but they also got responses like bagels and donuts, um, and bananas and Snickers bars and things that you wouldn't think you know, would would solve that job to be done. So I think by framing it as job to be done, it opened their eyes that there's more competition that we should look at and consider. And then also, as they wanted to innovate and improve that product, they realized that the milkshake market was not a mature market because it could be expanded and viewed different ways. So rather than, you know, trying to change the product and make it healthier and market it, you know, oh, we look, we added fruit things that were actually going to speak to that audience were going to be things like, can we make the milkshake thicker so that it takes longer to drink on the commute and covers more of the commute? Those are, you know, product features to tout in marketing messages. So I feel like, you know, in, in doing that and in framing, um, framing things as a job to be done, you're able to understand the audience better, able to update the product to continue to serve their needs better, and then also just have a better grasp on who your competitors are because there might be competition out there that you're not thinking of or that you're excluding um, when you don't think of it that way. That is so fascinating. What a great example. And I think that speaks to something that that marketers miss a lot of times because they're so busy or because the pressure of time, they forget about the most important aspect of being a marketer, which is being empathic. You know, um, I remember uh, Matt Williams from the Brand Federation talking about how important empathy is. And because if we can't put ourselves in other people's shoes for real, then we'd never discover that, hey, the job this milkshake's doing isn't a dessert. For a lot of people, it's a commute breakfast, you know? And I think that step of understanding not what you want your product to be, not what you, even sometimes what you intended, and someone else is using it, they've, they've invented a use for your product and they love it for that use. I think that's such an important point of view in marketing in general. So that was really cool. I love that example. That's fascinating. Yeah, it was really interesting. I bet. Yeah, that's. A, I mean, what a great way to look at things. And I'm certainly going to make that part of that that frame part of the way I think about products from here on out because I love that thinking about what job they're doing for the people that are using them. I think so too. And I think something that's really interesting and I didn't really think about too much until this course. Whenever I think of innovation. I think of people sitting in a room brainstorming and coming up with the, you know, the next big product. And that's really not the case. Like if you think about that example, it's improving a milkshake to better serve customers' needs. So, you know, the innovating doesn't have to be this big thing that's going to change the world. It could just improve the lives of the people you're trying to serve, even if it's in a seemingly small way. Yeah, that, I, that, I love that point of view. I think innovation, you always picture someone with a slide rule figuring out some new piece of technology. And innovation sometimes is just changing experience for someone or changing the use or acknowledging the use of, you know, to fit that person's life. So um, I think that's a wonderful point. So for companies looking to grow, 
there are things they need to consider when determining where to focus their energy. So how does a company's resources, processes, and profit formula affect whether an innovation is successful? Yeah, so I think, you know, most companies are built to have a certain type of profit formula and to be set up to allocate resources in a certain way. And if you think about it, say, you know, you're a company that is used to selling customers on very bulk orders. Your production lines are set up to produce things in bulk. Changing you know, your production line to produce a different project is very time consuming. Um, so you're set up for your salespeople to be able to sell big orders. And that's what they've always told customers is gonna be the best. And that's where they create efficiencies. And then you decide to buy some new machines and maybe build a new warehouse where you can do really small custom orders. So in that case, it's kind of a new market disruption, right? You're going to reach people that you're not able to reach with, with bulk orders. Yeah. But if you're trying to have that same sales team go out and now sell very small scale custom orders, and you're having the same people that have worked on your big lines now work on a small line, the mindset is going to be what they've always done. So being able to allocate your resources and set up your business structure um, to match what you're trying to do is really important. That's so interesting. And that's almost a companion to innovation. I mean, obviously, it's an innovation course. And I mean, you certainly learned a ton. It's amazing. I know you well enough by working with you every day that your your uh, mind is like a steel trap when you learn something. It's just in there. you know. So it's really fun to hear you talk about this. You and I have talked about it a little bit. But I think um, you know, you taking taking these classes and getting the certification and strategy is so good for us and our clients because um, I, I've seen you start to work it into your everyday, which I think is really interesting. And that that example you gave about you know you might open the new facility and decide to get into this new way of manufacturing something, but if you don't bring the people along with you and train them or get different people to fill that different process, then you've missed one of the steps in innovation. Absolutely. As companies are thinking about growth, you know, they should identify their performance defining component then, right? Yeah. If you think of your value stack, your performance defining component is really the one that customers care the most about. Um, and it's what you're the best at. So, you know, you and I talked about gravity and, and what's ours and looking at how we offer what we offer and, and what we offer. And for us, it's really the fact that we're a holistic company. So we're able to help people um, with kind of anything that they would need related to branding and marketing. And we're a group of specialized individuals versus, you know, a company that specializes in one thing and they have a team of people who all specialize in that one thing. So our performance defining component is that service that we're able to offer and kind of the breadth of expertise that we have. So thinking about that same type of thing, you know, for your business or for other businesses is just really important because the more you can optimize, you know, recognize that and then optimize around it, that's a differentiator, you know, in the market and it helps you create a barrier to entry for competition. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that perspective is amazing and knowing who you are in the market and knowing how your position in the market is absolutely crucial. And it always surprised me there are so many companies that whether it's because there's been change over time or the market has changed or they just never made it clear in the first place, actually have never addressed that. Right, absolutely. And I think something that we talked about you know, just a few minutes ago that ties into that really well is the job to be done. If you're identifying the job to be done and how you're meeting that, 
you're essentially hitting that performance divining component on the head. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons, you know, we know who we are and clients come to us and they know that if we can't do it in-house and find an answer, we're going to find them the right partner. And that's because that's how we exist. You know, we do take a holistic view on marketing and brand, whereas a web company that also does marketing, you know, it's almost like, you know, a hammer and a nail. The, ham the hammer is always looking for that nail and the nail is always looking for a hammer. So you're going to come from that point of view, whether you want to or not. It's almost like your example of the factory that retools. You know, if the people are specialized thinkers and it's web first or digital first, then they're going to have a pretty hard time broadening their point of view to even strategy. I mean, I've worked at, you know, really large publicly traded companies before coming to Gravity and it was extremely siloed and it was really hard not having that integrated approach to our marketing. Um, and it was really confusing for, you know, for customers who would hear or see something in one place and it wouldn't match what they saw somewhere else, or they had one experience on a website and a different experience, you know, in a retail uh, environment. So I think that's one of the great things that we're able to bring to the table is we're not siloed and we're able to keep all of those aspects, you know, of marketing your business, communicating and, and working together. Yeah. I remember working with, you know, large healthcare organizations you know, and they would get frustrated when I would insist, no, all of it actually has to work together from the customer experience to the things people see on the wall to the marketing in the marketplace. It all actually has to match and say the same thing and be the same thing. And, you know, it comes back to a phrase that I've used a lot that, you know, you can do whatever you want, but everything actually matters. You know, if it's not about you and it's about the, the consumer, they're going to notice these things. And if things don't match up, then it's not true to brand. So I think that's a really great point. There are three main phases that you and I have talked about of business growth. How does each impact in like your strategic approach as a company? The first is the market creating phase. And that's really when, you know, a profitable strategy hasn't really been identified or defined yet. So you're kind of in emergent strategy mode where ideas are coming from throughout the organization and you're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. Um, once you move from that phase to the sustaining phase, that's where you've started to identify what works well. And so you move from an emergent strategy to a deliberate strategy. And that's when, you know, leadership really needs to step in and say, okay, here's what is working best for the company. So in the past, we were trying, you know, these couple of different things, but this is the path that we're, we're going to proceed down. Um, and then from there, there's an efficiency phase. So as you continue to find what works or what doesn't, that continues to feed your deliberate strategy. But then as there are either new opportunities, changes in the market, or even mistakes, that's where you can also have some emergent strategy in place so that you're constantly responding, you know, to things that are arising and, and innovating in that respect as well. Yeah, I think that's such an important point of view to know the difference between sustaining the sustaining phase and the efficiency phase and not to get those mixed up. Yeah, it's really important to know where you're at because each of those, you know, is going to take into account your resources and your profit and things like that. So you need to be able to allocate all of those based on which phase you're in. Yeah, that's so interesting. So I know you have a couple examples. You told me one about like GM and OnStar at one point 
and I can't I can't really recall it perfectly because you were the, talking to you. I always get so much information. That's one of the th things I love about working with you. But can you tell me that example again? Yeah. So one of the case studies that we talked about in the course was with GM and OnStar, and when they first rolled out, you know, OnStar in their vehicles, and it was really interesting. Whenever I think of OnStar, I always think, well, that's if you're in an accident or need roadside assistance, like you would have OnStar and they would send help. Um, but when they first rolled it out, they're really they were in an emergent phase. They were trying to figure out how will people use this new technology that's not, you know, been part of the vehicles before. So OnStar actually did everything. It was more of a concierge service. So you could use OnStar to like schedule your child's birthday party and like plan it. Um, it offered the roadside assistance, but there were a bunch of different things. It was kind of your phone a friend, and if you needed help with something or any sort of concierge type service, you used your OnStar. And so it was something that they were trying to sell at the dealerships that the dealerships would install, you know, in the vehicles and people didn't really get it and didn't really use it. Um, yeah. So what they found then was that it was primarily used for emergencies and, and roadside assistance. And when they found that out, they switched from the, you know, an emergent strategy to a deliberate strategy and said, okay, this is how we're going to use OnStar going forward. This is what we will offer. So they changed the offering to focus on that, which made their messaging much clearer. It made sales at dealerships much clearer. And then they also were using Spider-Man in their marketing at the time because they thought, oh, this is you know tough and this will, will show people how cool this is because Spider-Man's cool. And they actually had a customer contact them who had used the service for an emergency situation. And she said, look, I, I care about this product and I want you to know that you're doing yourself a disservice because this is a very serious thing that you're offering and very valuable and you're kind of making a mockery of it. So you need to change that and you need to tell a, a true, honest story of what this service can do for people. And I think that speaks volumes. You know, we work with so many clients who utilize testimonials and customer stories to tell an authentic story and to tell their brand story, you know, through the eyes of their customers. And I think this example just, you know, really reinforced how important that is and how much, you know, it's rare that a customer is going to speak up and say, hey, your marketing's doing the wrong thing. You should do this, not that. And it would be more meaningful. Um, we don't often get that kind of feedback, but I think it's a pretty good example that that's really how people feel. I mean, that's pure gold to get from a customer. And then I, you know, it's, that's such an interesting story for me because I had on, I had a Chevy at about the time that they changed their direction on that, how they were selling it. And, you know, when they were trying to make it a concierge service, I wasn't interested in all at all. I was sort of shopping for cars around then, but you know, the emergency roadside assistance at that point in time was a really big innovation to be able to just press a button, you know, at your, in your overhead dashboard and boom, you had somebody on the phone and they were sending, you know, rescue services. That was a big deal. And I remember when they put out the testimonials of people who had gotten in an accident and help was right on the way because the car sensed that there was an accident and called emergency services. So powerful. Yeah. When I think if I had, you know, a dollar for every time you've said that people buy emotionally and then, yeah. you know, Defend look it. at it logically yeah. and rationalize logically, uh, I'd probably be retired. But um, I think this is a, a perfect example. Like by going with those types of, of honest stories, you know, people can then connect with a technical product really emotionally. Yeah. I mean, that's visceral safety. And then, um, you know, one of the big things about that, and one of the reasons I think it's such a strong example from your course, is that that is 100% an emotional innovation. 
that's an innovation where you're you've looked at this product you tried to launch, you've changed course on it, you've you know removed the things you thought people would like, and simplified it based on feedback, and it's now doing the job that people want it to do for them. So it's really amazing how that comes back around to the job you need, you know, the product to do. So, you know, because you're already buying a car, you probably, for concierge services, you probably use Google. <laughs> you know, you don't need someone to look stuff up for you. But, you know, that moment where you need help, that's quite a product to have. And I think other automakers have gone on to copy them too. It was interesting um, because I forget now which product it was. I believe it was it was one of the Lincoln products. I forget if it was a the Navigator or the Escalade, but it was before they had like an SUV option. Um, and they were saying throughout this case study that essentially they took a Tahoe and added OnStar and then rolled it out as a new product. And it was the addition of OnStar that made them charge the price they did, you know, for it and, and have it be a different product line. That's crazy. I know that that whole uh, certificate and the study on on disruptive innovation has been you know, just an eye opener for you. And you've brought so much great thinking to our company and to clients because of it. Um, just to augment your already incredible experience. What's the next one? What's the next course for you in that series? What are you What are you looking at? Yeah, so the next one I think I'm probably going to take is economics for managers, um, which dives into pricing strategy um, and things like that, which I think will be really interesting. Um, they just rolled out this week a different learning track um, that the course I took would fall under. So I now have two different ways I could go to earn a bigger uh, certificate in. Um, but I think economics for managers is probably the one I'll take next. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we always talk here at Gravity and Lindsay, you and I talk about this all the time about being lifelong learners and just being passionate about new information and learning because the world changes and being able to help our clients is, you know, we have to be right on the edge of things. So I really applaud you. You're probably one of the most ferocious lifelong learners that I've ever met. And it's just so much fun, you know, to work with. It's takes it's amazing. one to know one, I think. <laughs> yeah, we're both a little curious. I'm just gonna ask you a couple like real quick, uh, quick questions that I always ask podcast guests, because this has been so much fun. Since I have you, I might as well just hit you with a couple of quick fun questions. So what's the most important thing you've learned so far in your career? Do you think? I would say one of the most important things I've learned so far in my career is, you know, we talk a lot with marketing about knowing your audience and, you know, marketing to them, building around them. But I think a big part of being able to do that is also knowing yourself um, and knowing when to insert yourself into situations and when to pull yourself out of situations. I remember when I first started at Gravity and we were doing some brand ID design for a client and I was looking at concepts and I thought, oh, I really don't like this one. I don't like that color or I don't like, you know, that line there. And then I had to step back and, and realize like, okay, I need to pull myself out of this situation because I am not the audience for this. Um, and so being able to give feedback or interact and engage, you know, on a project in a way that is best for the audience and, and for the client. Um, but then also recognizing times where this is something that I should, you know, maybe put my foot down on um, and, and push a little harder on. So I think understanding yourself to help you understand and serve the audience better. That's such a great answer. And I think that comes down to 
if you're going to be a great marketer, you have to practice empathy and perspective because, you know, being egocentric about like, I just don't like blue isn't going to serve you very well, you know, and depending on always keeping in mind, the audience is so key to what we do for a living because it's not, you know, when you're a marketer, it's not about you. It's about what the audience thinks, feels, believes, dreams about. So I think that's a really cool answer. So have you been given any advice that's really stuck with you? I would say something that stuck with me is, you know, I don't think maybe necessarily anyone ever sat down or like made it a point to tell me to do this, but just kind of throughout conversations and leading by example, um, not being afraid to speak up. So I think sometimes it can be easy to be one person at a table of many and think, oh, this has been addressed or no one cares what I have to say. Um, but not being afraid to speak up and being confident, you know, in what you know and being willing to share that and then help others, you know, along the way too, so that they can help, you know, find their voice and speak up. Yeah. That's, I mean, you know, a lot of the lessons we learned are like, uh, combinations of things we've experienced and people have told us. And that's such an important one. I'm so glad you said that because I see you do that. And I think for anyone in business and especially in marketing, that's what makes you a great consultant is because you'll speak up when you think something needs to be said. And I think, you know, we all have a voice and we have a lot of experience in sharing. It's why we're here. So I think that's so cool. What's something that, you know, we talked a lot about the innovation course and everything you learned there, but what's something you've learned uh, on any subject, personal or social media, digital, anything? What's something you've learned this week or recently? Hmm. I would say this week, something that I'm kind of diving into a little bit, which maybe is a little silly, um, but Instagram is changing their algorithms um, and their feed again. So, you know, it used to be chronological, it's changing now, or it had changed to be kind of showing people what they were most likely to interact with. And now people are going to have the choice as to whether they want their feed to be set up like that or chronological. So from a business perspective, as you think about your posting strategy, um, how, when, what you post, all of the things, you're going to have to have two different types of Instagram users in mind. Um, and so kind of digging into that a little bit um, so that we can provide recommendations to clients and, and think about what that means as people are posting on social. Yeah, that's really cool. And that, that kind of goes back to always being curious. That's one of the things I love about our jobs. And you and I talk about this all the time is the, the nature of needing to, you know, some people get overwhelmed by it, but I love the nature of needing to learn all the time because I never get bored. It's either we're involved in a new industry or an industry that's related to one but has specific differences or it's just a new technique or something changing in the marketplace or in social or digital. And man, I'll tell you, if you love not being bored, this is definitely the career for you. It's pretty cool. I agree. And I think what's maybe really interesting, at least to me, about it is we not only get to learn about you know marketing trends and best practices and tools but all of the industries our clients are in. So, you know, when I built my house, I knew what I needed to do to get a mortgage because we work with financial clients. Um, and just, I mean, it's like that with every industry that we work with, but it's just really interesting and, and helpful just in life in general to know, you know, a lot about a lot of different things. Yeah, it's amazing because we've worked with so many different kinds of companies all, through the years, like construction, healthcare, 
financial, all these different sectors. And I feel like I got like a casual master's in some of them because of just having to work in them so in depth that uh, it's a pretty cool way to to become even more of a well-rounded person being in marketing. You learn a lot. So I'm going to ask you one last question, then I'll let you go because I know you have a lot to do. So if you could tell your younger self something and give your younger self some advice on what you know today, what would it be? I think to think about what's really important. And then once you think you know what's important, think a little harder. Um, because I think there's a lot of times that we get stressed or worked up or we're focused on something that we think is just, you know, going to make or break us if we don't get it right or, you know, don't achieve something. But when you think of the long game, the things that are important to us in the short term probably aren't that meaningful in the long term. So, you know, always having that in mind and not just working for what you want to accomplish today, um, but thinking, you know, 10 or 20 years down the road and setting yourself up for long-term success and not stressing about things now. It's just not worth it. That's great advice and really wonderful perspective. You know, sometimes you're getting smacked in the face with the branches and not seeing the forest at all. And uh, I think, you know, especially in fast-paced jobs like we have, you have to have a sense of humor and you have to be able to see the big picture. Yeah, I think the number of times that I missed out on things in college yeah. or early in my career because I was stressed about a GPA or you know, getting extra stuff done, you know, and then looking back now, I'm like, does anyone care about my GPA? Not really. <laughs> no, they, they just care about your brain and your ability to do all the incredible things you do. Well, thanks for doing this today. I think uh, we, we actually ended up with uh, quite a cool podcast episode. This was probably one of my favorite conversations I've had in a while. I mean, probably since I talked to you earlier this morning. <laughs> but one of the reasons I absolutely love working with you is uh, you're just fiercely intelligent. You're so competent. And you're you're such a steady, caring leader that it's just amazing to, to work with you every day. So thank you for everything you do for our company. It's pretty incredible. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Want to hear more inspiring stories? Subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, and share. It's the best way to support us. Thank you for listening to Brand Story. Brand Story.